Thank you, David and Miss Pat. How beautiful. Well, that's wonderful, isn't it? i tell you the truth. Uh, I was thinking about this um, earlier this week. You know, when this church finally is able to move to a morning worship, you might have to come up with some money to pay these people to come up here. <laughs> i tell you what. Oh, I lost my phone. Very, very encouraging. What a beautiful, beautiful song. Well, also, I wanted to say to you guys, uh, very thankful for Mark and his love of the Word of God, and especially uh, what he said earlier. I mean, that was really a good sermon right there with what you said with the catechism. So well done. It's good to be back with you today, and I'm glad to be able to be here on this Lord's Day. Next Lord's Day, I'm going to be out of town, and Mark's going to be coming down to our church and filling in for me, which is such a blessing to be able to have that. And uh, our church looks forward and always loves to have Mark and his family there to share in the Word of God in our church, and so we're blessed to have his availability to do so. So we'll be praying for you all and missing you and uh, hoping that we can be back soon. We'll go down to Florida for a funeral. Uh, today, what I'd like to do is take your attention back to Second Thessalonians, which is actually kind of good because I wasn't able to finish last week, and then I've added now another 46 pages, so we'll see where we go today. Probably won't finish this either, and that's okay. I've been talking about this chapter now for a number of weeks in our church, and we've been spending some time working our way through it very carefully just to make sure we understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And I'll be honest with you that there are things in this text that are mysterious. There are things in this text that you wish you had more information on. And even the Apostle Paul makes mention of some things that he told the Thessalonian church but did not tell us. And so we're left with some gaps. But for the things that he did tell us, we can get some sense of certainty to them and get a better idea of what's coming. So what I'd like to do is read the first four verses for the sake of time this afternoon, I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And we're talking about signs of the second coming of Christ, specifically the revelation of the Antichrist. Verse 1 says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. As though the day of Christ had come, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. If you are aware of Christian media, then you are also aware that in the last few weeks it has been set ablaze by speculations regarding whether or not we are living in the last of the last days. With the recent presidential election and then the two-year pandemic, along with that now the recent war in Ukraine, and every now and then the North Korean leader firing off a missile, and then this morning there were missiles fired out of Iran into Iraq, and then the crackdown on the churches in Canada, along with the rise of persecution among the people of God throughout the world, some believe that this is it, that this is the return, this is the time of his return. According to one article that was written just this past week, it said that the war in Ukraine 
has reignited beliefs among some conservative evangelicals that Russia could help fill biblical prophecies concerning the end of the world. These evangelicals, and more importantly, more particularly charismatic Christians who focus on end-time theories, have long believed that Russia would play a special role in the end times. And they are sharing their theories and their ideas and their speculations on the Internet voraciously. Earlier in the month, California megachurch pastor Greg Laurie, who is at one time part of the presidential inner circle for uh, pastoral advisors, he said this, that he thought that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia had prophetic significance. And then you have men like Pat Robertson, founder of the Christian Broadcasting Network, suggested that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, was compelled, quote, compelled by God to attack Ukraine. Since then, of course, people have engaged in all types of prophecy speculation, giving their own biblical interpretation of the current events and trying to read what's going on in the current world events into the text of Scripture. Did you know that there's actually something called a rapture index? I didn't know that till this past week. The rapture index goes up to a scale of 200, and the most it had ever climbed to was in 2001, September 11th, when it hit 182. And the idea behind that is much like the doomsday clock, you know, the doomsday clock that says we're getting closer and closer to atomic annihilation, nuclear war, and everything's going to end. I checked that out this past week, and it said as of January that we're 100 seconds away from doomsday, according to the doomsday clock. Well, the rapture index has escalated in the last few weeks. It's no longer 182. Now we're at 187. So you're only a few digits away from being raptured out of here. As soon as it hits 200, you're gone. Well, that's how they gauge it. And other conservative Christians have looked at world events and pointed to biblical references and certain signs with the escalation of wars and rumors of wars, and as I told you, even pestilences and diseases, Michael Brown, who I don't normally quote, who has a Charlotte-based Christian radio show called The Line of Fire, said this, and I quote, when you have Christians who already think about how we're living in the last days and they see continual moral decline in America and they see the church being marginalized, it doesn't take a whole lot to tip the scales. And I agree with that for sure. And just to be clear, just in case you're not sure, I do not endorse any of these guys I just quoted. But a few years ago, actually a few decades ago now, you may remember that many believed in the evangelical church that Mikhail Gorbachev, the former leader of the Soviet Union, was the Antichrist. And the reason why is because he had a birthmark on his forehead and some believed it was the mark of the beast. Others have now recently said that they believe that Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist and have their own particular reasons why they believe so. And these speculations continue to escalate, and they will continue to escalate more and more as you see world events unfold that may necessarily or not necessarily be related at all to the coming of Christ. One of the things you need to realize is that we frankly find it very difficult to look at world events like these that I've just shared with you and to be able to determine that this is the time of the Lord's return. 
And the reason why is because we've always had wars and rumors of wars. We've always had tyrants and dictators and leaders like we see on the world stage today. And we definitely have had diseases and pestilences even much, much worse than what we just experienced in the last two years. So whenever you see these things going on in the world, you have to be very careful that you begin to diagnose the situation and conclude that, yes, we are in the time or the seasons of the Lord's return. But even with that said, many still do. But Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, gives us some very specific signs some non-negotiable, non-debatable, very clear, obvious, universal signs that are absolute regarding the return of Christ. And his point is, when you see these things, and the things he's talking about are found in verse 3 of our text. Look at it. He says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the day of Christ or the day of the Lord, will not come unless a falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Now, the day of the Lord is an eschatological term that refers to the day of God's judgment. It's used in the Old Testament many, many times that way to refer to specific historic judgments, but also it, is refer, it refers to what we would call eschatological judgment in the future whenever the Lord comes back to judge the world in righteousness and to judge man's sin. And what Paul is saying is, is that day will not come unless these two events happen first. The first is the falling away, which is the apostasy, a falling away from the faith. These are not true believers falling away from the faith. These are those that associate with Christianity who name, and I put that in quotes, name the name of Christ and say they are Christians, but they're really not Christians and whenever the heat is turned up and the fire is on and the persecution is increased, then they're going to find themselves walking away from the visible church. That's going to be a great apostasy, apostasy large enough, significant enough that the church will know it. You will see it. It'll be different than the ongoing trickle, we might say it like that, an ongoing trickle of apostasy that we see even happening today with a lot of people in the Christian music industry and even sadly in some pastorates and churches where they've literally walked away from the faith, denied the truth of the gospel and denied the very essence of what the Bible says about Christ. But then he also says there's going to be another sign. And this is again is a very obvious, irrefutable, known sign that the church will be able to discern and that is this, that the man of sin or the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of perdition. And that leads us to our first point we've already discussed is his description. He is called a man of lawlessness or a man of destruction or a son of destruction. That refers to his characteristic. He's a man that is characteristically no law or against the law. He doesn't have any desire at all to follow the laws of God but he will have his own set of laws, no doubt about that, that you will be required to follow. And if you don't, you will be persecuted to the point of death. He's also called the son of destruction, which refers to the fact that he is a man who is characterized as destruction, but also is going to destruction. There was another man in the time of Christ that was called the son of destruction, and his name was Judas Iscariot. Very similar. The second point was that we not only notice the description of the Antichrist, but his desecration. 
His desecration is found in verse 4. There's a lot in this verse. And in this verse, we find a number of characteristics of this Antichrist. The first thing is that he's adversarial. Verse 4 says he opposes. That means he's against and hostile to. He's the adversary of. This word is also translated adversary in the sense of the reference to the devil himself. It's also translated in another portion of scripture to refer to being contrary to something. But he opposes what? He opposes all that is called God or that is worshipped or any object of worship. And the word God there may be capitalized in your Bible. It could be lowercase g because there's no definite article there, meaning that it could be this, that this Antichrist is against, opposed to, contrary to, the adversary of all that is called a God or even that is an object of worship, which I pointed out that this would qualify the adversary, the Antichrist, to be one who will not tolerate any other religion whether it be Christianity or Judaism or even Roman Catholicism. Because Roman Catholicism is filled with idolatry. And since he will oppose every object of worship, then that means he's going to oppose Mary worship, the veneration of the saints, the worship of the relics, and many, many other things. This would include the gods of Hinduism, too, he would be opposed to, Buddhism, and all the other religions that have their idols, whatever they have. He's going to be opposed to them. In other words, he's not going to tolerate any other religion or any other worship other than worship of himself. He's the adversary of that. That leads us to the second point of his characteristic. He's egotistical. It says in verse 4, he exalts himself above all that is called a god or that is an object of worship. In other words, he says, I am the supreme, I am the sovereign, I am God. He is one who desires to be worshipped, as we note in the uh, book of Daniel and also in the book of Revelation. He desires to exalt himself above all gods and, no doubt, clearly the God, the true God. And he is a very, very prideful, arrogant, self-absorbed, evil man. The other point I wanted to bring up, in verse 4 is, he's adversarial, egotistical, and universal. Notice again in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God. And if he's going to oppose every so-called God, that means his, his um, political and religious atmosphere is universal. He, is, he has worldwide influence. And that seems to be the indication of Especially in Revelation 13, where it talks about the beast who had authority given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. In Revelation 13, 8, it says that those who dwell on the earth will worship him. Revelation 13, 12 talks about the false prophet who causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. And then Revelation 14, 6 defines for us who the ones are that dwell in the earth. Some have said that this only is a localized worship restricted to the Roman Empire only. But it seems to me, based upon the way the text reads here, is that it's much broader than that. Because in Revelation 14, 6, he says that those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue, and to every people. That's a good group of people. That's a large group. That's more than just the Roman Empire. But the other point was is that he's counterfactual. He's counterfactual, meaning this, that he's opposite God in the sense that he 
shows himself to be so. Look at it again in verse 4. It says that he sits as God or as a God in the temple of the God. Now there there is the definite article, which now we're talking about the true God. He says he sits as a God in the temple of the God, the true God, showing himself that he is God. Now this passage is much debated. If you have any commentaries or if you read on this at all, you're going to find out that they're all over the map as to what this temple of God is. If you're in the Reformed community, like we are, most of us are, you're going to find that most people steer away from a physical, visible temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. But then there are those in the historic Reformed position that believe that this temple of God may have been a historical temple, that maybe this is a reference to a historical event that occurred maybe during the days of Nero or Caligula or any of the other emperors during that time, that they have gone into the temple in Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and set up idols to be worshipped. Others believe that that may not necessarily be the case. Maybe the temple refers to one of the Roman temples, like Nero did when he would go into some of the temples there and set up things to be worshipped regarding him. But the reason why I would reject that is simply because the text is very clear later on in 2 Thessalonians 2 that this man of sin, this man of lawlessness, will be consumed with the brightness of the coming of Christ. So whoever this man of sin is, he's not a historical figure. He is a future man. This future man who will live on this planet, no doubt clearly indwelt by and governed by and possessed by the devil himself, and yet, he will be here whenever the Lord comes back and will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Others have said that it's metaphorical, meaning that you just t- simply take it allegorically or symbolically, meaning that this Antichrist sits as God, not necessarily in a physical place, but he takes the rulership of God or he takes the place of God's rule and reign in the planet. But there's nothing in the text to indicate that. You you have to simply read into that text, that view, because nothing in the text indicates that we should take it that way. Everything else in the text is considered literal. There's a literal coming of Christ, a gathering of the saints in verse 1. There's a literal concern for them being misled from the truth by letters being circulated. There's a literal apostasy he talks about, a literal revealing of the son of sin, or the man of sin, rather, And then later on in the same text, there's a real restrainer. We don't know who that is, but there's a real restrainer that restrains this man of sin. There's also the real return of Jesus Christ that he comes and he consumes. There's real deception, a real lie that's believed by those that reject the gospel. So there's nothing in the text that tells us we should take it metaphorically. But the other and probably more popular view today among some of the Reformed scholars is that it's ecclesiastical, meaning that this temple of God is the church, the true church. And where they base that on is because the Apostle Paul on four other occasions uses the word temple of God to refer to the church. So they would think, well, if Paul uses it the other four times to refer to the true church, then why should we assume that Paul's using it any other way in this text in 2 Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles this 
temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That's pretty straightforward. Seems to be a, a great argument to support that this is the temple that he's talking about. But the problem with that view is this. Whenever Paul talks about you and I being the temple of God, what he means by this is that this is where God dwells. He uses the word naos, N-A-O-S, to refer to the holy of holies regarding the temple. So you are, not this building, even though as beautiful as it is, this is not the temple of God. You are the temple of God. The people of God, the true saved people of God, are the temple of God where God dwells by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So my question is, as I read that view, and initially it kind of appealed to me, I thought, well, okay, but how does the Antichrist get in the temple of God? How does he get there? There's only one way into this temple. We're not talking about a physical temple. We're not talking about a physical building. We're talking about you and me. We're the temple of God. How does he get in? There's only one way anyone gets into it, and that's by salvation. This is not something you just go into, and because you're physically standing around believers, you're in the church. There are thousands of people who are physically present in worship on a Sunday morning that are not Christians, and they're not necessarily part of the temple of God. And then the other thing that leads me against that view is, is that in the Bible, it's very clear that the true people of God, the saints of God, who do have the Holy Spirit, will not be deceived by the Antichrist. So if he's going to take his seat of authority in the true church, that would mean that the true church has been deceived by the Antichrist. And that now we're just, you know, blindly following along whatever he has to say. But the Bible says that you and I will not follow another shepherd. It makes it very clear that we're not in darkness according to what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are not in darkness. We're in light. We know the truth. And the Bible says repeatedly that the only ones that follow after the beast are the ones that do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. So my point is, I don't think, even though it is appealing, I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about. I believe he has something else in mind. I believe he's talking about a geographical temple. In other words, it's something that's real, something that's visible, physical, and something that's tangible. Now, like I said, I know that that sometimes flies in the face of what some believe today, that it's literally impossible for uh, a temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem because it was destroyed in 70 AD. But what you need to understand is this. Even though there is the true body of Christ that is made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, and we are part of Abraham's descendants. The Bible's clear on this. The Israelites that are over in Israel right now, the true Israelites that are there, I'm talking about as far as physical Israelites, that don't believe in Messiah, they believe in the temple. They want a temple. Just because the Bible says there's going to be a temple where the Antichrist will walk into doesn't give legitimacy to the temple. It doesn't mean the temple is now taking over and we just got rid of the old covenant and we got the new covenant. Now we're going to get rid of the new covenant and go back to the old covenant. That's not what he's talking about here. The idea is that, yes, Israel will indeed have a physical, visible temple rebuilt, reconstructed in Jerusalem as they desire to have. And whatever that form that temple may take, this man, the Antichrist, 
will walk into it and desecrate that temple. These unbelieving Jews that do not believe in your Messiah believe in the old Mosaic economy. They believe they need sacrifices. There's a group called the Temple Institute over in Jerusalem that actually has all the vestments and all the furniture already rebuilt for the temple. And they only want the right political environment to set it up. A couple of years ago, literally two or three years ago, they did, I would call it a practice run. It probably wasn't a practice run for them. They actually set up an altar outside the wall of Jerusalem and sacrificed an animal. I mean, this is unheard of. We're 2,000 years past the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And now we actually have a people over in Israel speaking the Hebrew language, still subscribing to the old economic system and old economy of the Mosaic law and desiring to set up a temple. So is it even plausible that in the future, perhaps maybe these lost Jews who do not embrace the Messiah could erect a temple? Yes, they could. They very much could. And so in that context, I believe that's where Paul is going. If it's not something historical, because the Antichrist is going to be around whenever the Lord comes back, and if it's not metaphorical and it's not something that refers to the true church, then there's only one left. It has to be a physical, visible temple that he walks into and desecrates. Now, one of the things that is characteristic about this is that in the book of Daniel, it talks about an event where... This evil man, this man we would call the Antichrist, will walk into a temple where there are sacrifices going on and stop the sacrifices. So in order for us to understand this, we need to go back to Daniel. But before we do that, let me just share with you a couple of words. Matthew chapter 24 is where I'd like to take you just for a moment. Matthew 24. I believe Jesus is actually referring to this event here in Matthew 24 in verse 15 and following he says this therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place now admittedly whenever Jesus said that there was a temple and it was a big one and it was a nice one in fact just earlier the disciples and Jesus had walked through the temple and the disciples said see all this beautiful structure here and then Jesus told them that very important prophecy that see all these things all of these all of this is coming down not one stone will be left on another and he prophesied the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD and so some whenever they read this text they think well this is all Jesus is talking about this abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel standing in the holy place because Jesus goes on and says in the same text Whenever you see that, get out of Judea. Run for your life. Run to the hills, if you will. Get out of here. He says, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter because there's snow in the mountains. Pray, pray that you're not pregnant. Why? Because you can't run that fast. And whenever you're up on the top of your house on your roof where most people would relax in those days, he says, don't go down and get anything out of your house. You don't have time. It's time to get out of Jerusalem. And so many believe, because in the very next few words, it says, and then there will be great tribulation. So many believe, well, that's, that's 70 AD. Because whenever Titus came in, at least the second go around, and finally he began to slaughter and kill uh, many of the uh, Jews there and destroy 
the temple and the structures of Jerusalem. Over a million Jews were killed. They were held up for months, literally, as they encompassed around Jerusalem, and they starved to death. They, on one occasion, there's testimony in Josephus' writings of one mother eating her own child. And then whenever some of the people, some of the zealots came in, she offered them some of the child to eat. I mean, there's horrific things that occurred in that context. So when people read that, they think, well, there it is. That's all it is. What Jesus is talking about here in this abomination of desolation is whenever Rome came in and they desecrated the temple, destroyed it, and, and then, of course, stopped the sacrificial system. But I would have to say, is that all that it is? Is that all that it is? Or is Jesus actually referring to more than just 70 A.D.? I would believe, based upon Luke's gospel, the parallel account where it says that you will see the armies encircle Jerusalem, that no doubt clearly Jesus had in mind the coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But I also believe that there was more going on there than just that in the mind of Christ. And this happens many times in prophecy. Many times in prophecy. Like even in the Old Testament, whenever it says that there will be a virgin who will conceive and have a child. Did you know that there was actually a prophecy that was fulfilled at that time, at that place when Isaiah wrote, but then it was also fulfilled whenever the Lord came? That same prophecy had another fulfillment to it. And I believe here in this text, there's more happening here because the Lord seems to tie these events together. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Matthew 24, 15. Again, he says, therefore, therefore, when you see the abomination. Now, the therefore backs you up to verse 9 when he begins to talk about you're going to be persecuted and hated by all nations and delivered up to be killed for my name's sake. And then comes the therefore in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, here comes the next connecting word. Verse 21, for then you will see great tribulation. When will we see great tribulation? Whenever the abomination of desolation is set up. That's the trigger event. That's the event that he tells his disciples, you look for this. And whenever you see this, it's time to get out of Judea and to run for your life. Verse 21 says, for then there will be great tribulation. Here's the words. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, this, the way this is constructed in the Greek language is like my professor of Greek used to say. You could say it like this, no way, Jose. In other words, there's no possible way whatsoever that this, this could be any worse. Now, some believe this is just hyperbole. That this is just Jesus talking in hyperbolic language. That you know, when you say, man, it was bad. No, it was really, really bad. That doesn't mean that it's the worst it's ever could be, but I don't think that that's all that Jesus has in mind, just using hyperbole. And the reason why is because this phrase, the way it's worded here, is almost a word-for-word quotation of Daniel chapter 12 that puts all of that wording at the time of the resurrection in the future. So he has more in mind here. In fact, Mark 13 says that this time that's coming is unlike any time in the history of the world, even worse than what has happened since creation. That would include the flood. That's pretty bad. 
So he says in verse 15, there's going to be an abomination of desolation. Verse 21, when you see that, it's time to uh, know that there's great tribulation coming. Then verse 29, here's the next connection. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. What tribulation? The great tribulation that he just talked about that was triggered by the abomination of desolation. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars, that's the word asteros, asteroids, will fall from the heavens, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Luke's gospel, the parallel passage says, there will be signs in the heavens, signs in the heavens. Although some interpret this just simply to mean cataclysmic, cosmological wording to say there's a bad time coming of judgment like in the old testament sometimes it would word it that way but i think luke's gospel gives us a little indication that there's more than just eschatological cataclysmic talk for the future that this actually has in mind there are going to be some signs in the sky there's going to be some signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and then in verse 30 look at it he says then there's the sign the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds. This is reminiscent of Zechariah 12 and 14. It's where the, the, the people of Israel see the Lord coming and it says they mourn and they weep as they look upon the one whom they pierced it says. Here in verse 30, he says, and then there's the sign of the Son of Man who will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What will he do? In verse 31, he will send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet, and he will gather together his elect, his chosen ones, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another, which is another way of saying over the whole planet. So the abomination of desolation is tied directly to the great tribulation. The great tribulation is tied directly to the coming of the Lord. And this coming, I believe, to be a future event. Some have chosen to interpret verse 29 and following regarding the return of Jesus Christ as a spiritual event in 70 A.D. Meaning that this is not the physical, visible coming of Christ in the future that you and I would look forward to, but this is in fact just a spiritual coming of Christ in judgment. The problem with that is, and I would go as far as to say it like I did earlier regarding the metaphorical interpretation of 2 Thessalonians, there's nothing in the text at all that indicates we should take it, take it that way. In fact, every other time in the New Testament when these words are used like this in this text, it's referring to the visible physical return of Christ. These words also match up very well with the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians when he says that there's coming a time when the Lord will appear in the air and those who are dead in Christ will resurrect first and then we who are alive and remain or survive is the word, we will be caught up or snatched up or gathered together as this text has to say it. And then Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, the text that we're looking at, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. In other words, whenever the Lord comes back, there's not going to be multiple comings, there's going to be one. Whenever he comes, he gathers. Whenever he comes, he gathers his people, then he judges. That's what he does. Here in this text, I believe this coming is a 
future event. So if that is a future event, then also we have to back it up and say there is a great tribulation in our future. We have to back it up again because the great tribulation is tied to the abomination of desolation. And that would mean that's also a future event. Now let me look at that abomination a little closer here. The word in verse 15, abomination of desolation. The word abomination is the word bedelugma. It's a Greek word, strange Greek word. But what it means is something that is disgusting or loathsome, something that um, is, uh, causes God's anger or hatred, usually in the context of a religious environment, especially if it is set up in a holy place or a temple. In the Old Testament, it refers to an idol because God hates idols and they are an abomination to him and especially if you were to take an idol and set it up in the temple in jerusalem that would be something that would cause god anger in fact the word that is translated abomination of desolation the entire phrase is understood by one lexicon as this that which god detests and which causes something to be abandoned or left desolate In other words, God sees it, detests it, hates it, responds in anger, and abandons it. And that's the idea behind it. And that's happened historically in Israel's history when they allowed idols to be set up in the temple. Even Antiochus Epiphanes, if you remember, they didn't allow this, but he did it without their permission whenever he set up an altar to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. And then he sacrificed a pig on their brazen altar. And then he called on the Jewish people on the 25th of every month to sacrifice a pig to worship Antiochus and the god Zeus. So this is not something new. It's happened before, this abomination of desolation. And I believe that's one of the reasons why Paul says that this is something that happens whenever the Antichrist goes into the temple. And Jesus makes reference to it, calling it an abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place. And he says this is something that Daniel talked about. In other words, for us to understand what he's talking about, we've got to go back to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15, whoever reads, let him understand. That's not an editorial note by Matthew. That is an actual statement of Jesus. If you have a red letter version, it's not in red. It should be in red, all right? Because it's really what the Lord said, not what Matthew said. How do we know that? Because when Matthew wrote his letter, when he wrote his words, the the parallel account, he also includes these words, which is indication that this is probably what Jesus said. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples and those that are listening to him This abomination of desolation is something that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet and let the reader who reads Daniel understand that, not Matthew. Reading Matthew, frankly, is not going to help us with this. We've got to go back to the book of Daniel. So what I'd like you to do is go there with me today and let's just look at that a little bit with the time we have remaining and consider what Daniel had to say about this. Now, there are four places in the book of Daniel where this abomination of desolation actually takes place or is observed or is referred to. One is Daniel 8, the other is Daniel 9, the other is Daniel 
11 and then Daniel 12. Four times. Let's look to begin with at Daniel 8. Daniel chapter 8 verse 9. We're not going to be able to go into all the details of these visions because it would take us for the rest of the week literally to discuss them and to go into detail on them. But I just want to point out the references here and specifically what I want you to notice among all four of them. Without exception, there is a reference to the daily sacrifice being removed. Now, the daily sacrifice is the Tamid offering. The Tamid offering was the morning and evening sacrifice that happened daily at the temple. Let's begin now in Daniel 8, verse 9. It says there that there's going to be one called the little horn, which will grow exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land, which refers to Israel. This little horn in verse 11 will exalt himself as high as the prince of hosts. And by him, by the little horn, the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of the sanctuary, which is the temple, was cast down. The point of the text is this little horn comes in, removes the daily sacrifices, the Tamid offerings, takes them away and causes the temple to be desolate. Or cast down. Now there's another text. I'll show you this one. Look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. This is in the middle of the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. An amazing prophecy that was given to us by Gabriel, the angel, about the uh, history and also the future of Israel. Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 27. We'll come back to this, Lord willing, if we have time. But in Daniel 9, 27, it says, Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week or one seven. Don't think of a week like ours, like starting Monday and going through Sunday. That's not what he's talking about. The word week in the Hebrew just means seven. And he's saying, and without going into all the detail, this refers to seven years. All right, seven years. Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week or seven years. And in the middle of that seven-year period... It says, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and the offering. And on the wing of abominations, or by means of abominations, shall one come who makes desolate. So the idea behind the text is, is that there's someone here who's going to confirm or make firm a covenant with Israel, because it's talking about Israel, for one seven-year period, and in the middle of that seven-year period, exactly halfway through, three and a half years in, he's going to bring an end to the sacrifice. All right? That's the second reference we've had to that sacrifice ending. Let's move a little further. Look at Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. It says, And the forces shall be mustered by him. This is Daniel eleven thirty-one. The forces shall be mustered by him. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now this is the first time that the actual wording is exact as Jesus gave it in Matthew 24, 15. When he says, the abomination of desolation. So here in this text, there's going to be one who's going to come. And he will take away the daily sacrifices and he will place there the abomination of desolation. Let's look one more. Chapter 12, the last chapter of the book. And let's look at verse 11. 
Verse 11. Daniel 12, 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. Now that's exactly like Jesus' words. All right? The abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Now we're getting really precise here now. We're, we're talking about days now. And the 1,290 days is equivalent to and matches up with the repeated times in the Old and the New Testament of time, times, and half a times, which is a three and a half year period. Revelation refers to the 1,260 days or the 42 months or the time, times, and half a times, which is three and a half years. Here Daniel talks about the 1,290 days. He adds 30 days onto it. And then in the very next verse, in verse 12, he talks about the 1,335 days, which then adds 45 more days to what we just talked about. You say, well, what in the world is he talking about? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. People speculate about it. We understand what the 1,260 days are, but we don't know why there's 30 days tacked on, and we don't know why there's another 45 days tacked on. People speculate that it might be the time of the judgment of the sheep and goats, that it might be a time of the restoration of the kingdom. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. And all it is is speculation because the Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, in this text, in a very frustrating way, Daniel is told twice to shut it up and seal it up until the time of the end. In other words, it's another way of saying to us, you're not going to know exactly what it means until the time of the end. Now, with that said, I don't believe we're left without any information because did you notice there's a trend here? Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12, it talks about this abomination of desolation and it talks about at that time daily sacrifices are taken away. As you move from chapter 8 to chapter 9, it's not as clear as far as the wording is concerned. By the time you get to chapter 11 and 12, he's using the exact language that Jesus himself used. Scholars debate on which reference Jesus is actually referring back to. Some believe that he's talking about chapter 9. Some believe he's talking about chapter 12. I believe he's talking about both. You say, what about chapter 8 and chapter 11? Both of those refer to Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, many believe that he was a foreshadowing, uh, not a complete fulfillment of, but a foreshadowing of the future Antichrist, because he does a lot of the same things. He has a lot of the same characteristics. He's a very arrogant, self-exalting, God-hating man who takes away the temple, sets up an idol in the temple, and calls on people to worship it. The parallels are mind-numbing, at least. But whenever you get to the prophecies of Daniel in 70, excuse me, in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel, it seems to be there that there's more detail about this abomination of desolation that in that context, he's talking about the last seven-year period. There's 490 years allotted for Israel. Look back at that for just a moment. I can't cover it all. But Daniel 9.24, let me show you this just for a moment. It's fascinating. It really is. Just to give you context on this, Daniel's been praying in chapter 9. He's praying for his people, Israel. They're in captivity. He's confessing their sin. 
He's confessing their rebellion against God. And he's calling on God to restore the people Israel back to their land. He's calling on God to bless them and to forgive them. And in answer to that, God dispenses the angel Gabriel. He comes from heaven. He shows up with an answer. And the answer is this prophecy in chapter 9, verse 24 and following. Like I told you, it's probably one of the most amazing detailed prophecies in all of the Bible. If you look at it in verse 24, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. I don't know if you remember this, but whenever Israel neglected to keep the yearly Sabbath for 490 years, they were put in captivity for how many years? 70, right? And the reason why is God says, look, you don't want to observe my Sabbath? Fine, I'll take it. And you're going to captivity. God likes numbers. And he likes very, he's very precise, very precise. All you have to do is look around, look at creation, right? He's very, very precise. So here in this text, think of it like this. There were 490 years that they blew it. They did. They really did. They blew it. And God said, okay, I've had it. You're out of the land. You're in Babylon, 70 years, locked up. But then in the prayer response, whenever Daniel's praying for God to forgive them and restore them, you know what God does? He gives them 490 years. If you look at it in the text again in verse 24, it says 70 weeks or really literally 70 sevens. And if you look up the actual words in the, in the lexicon, most agree that this refers to not days but to years. And we know it's years because as you move through the rest of the prophecy, it has to be years to allow the time for these prophecies to occur. So 77s or 490 years are determined by God, listen to this, for your people and for your holy city. This prophecy is specifically related to Israel and to the Jewish people and the people of Daniel. Now, there are extensions of this, obviously, like just to add to that, whatever happened in Israel regarding the Messiah affected all of us, right? You're here today because God brought Christ through Israel. So whatever's happening here in this context that is directly related to Israel is going to be a blessing and extension to us. It goes on in verse uh, 24. It says, this is what God has determined in that 490 years. There are six things that he mentions here. He says, it's going to be used to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now there's a lot in that text that we don't have time to go into, but ultimately the idea is, is that God is going to answer the prayer of Daniel. He's going to forgive their sins, bring them back. He's going to restore them. He's going to forgive them. He's going to make atonement for their iniquity. We know where that's coming from. Jesus is going to come. And he's going to die on the cross. He even says it. Look at verse 25 and following. Here it goes. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks. That's 483 years or 187,883 days, if you want to be precise. In this text... It's telling us that there's a decree that will go forth to rebuild the temple or rebuild Jerusalem 
According to most, they believe that was 444 B.C. by Artaxerxes. If you map it out and carry it out 183 years, you end up at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where he was hailed the Messiah. It, re it refers to the street being built again and the wall and even in troublesome times. But notice now verse 26. And after 62 weeks, the 62 weeks plus the uh, seven weeks, you know, we've already had the seven weeks in verse 25, which many believe was a 49-year period whenever the walls were rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt and the Jerusalem was rebuilt in troublesome times. And then there was an additional 62 weeks. And he says in verse 26, listen to this. Don't get lost in all the numbers. Pay attention to the most important things, which are the events that are fulfilled here. Verse 26, and after 62 weeks plus the seven, 483 years, Messiah shall be what? What does it say? Cut off. He shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, universally, most scholars and commentators believe that refers to the crucifixion or the atonement of Christ. That he comes, and after the 62nd week, or the 69th week, actually, Messiah shall be cut off. It says, not for himself, or can be translated, or not for anything, or for nothing. There's two ways to understand that. If it's not for himself, that means that he came as a substitution. He died and was cut off, not for himself, but for you and I. He died as our substitute. Or... If it is to be understood from the Hebrew word that it means that Messiah was be, would be cut off and have nothing, as some translations have it, it may refer to the fact that he was completely rejected by Israel. As he even said in John 1, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. And ultimately in the end, according to what we read in Matthew and other parts of the Gospels, they rejected him, turned away from him, and he had nothing. Could be one or could be both. But then in verse 26, it changes. It changes. All of a sudden, from verse 26 at the very beginning, when it's talking about Jesus being cut off, but not for himself or for nothing, the very next sentence moves 37 years into the future. Because it says in that text, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end shall be with a flood. What is he talking about? 70 A.D. That's what he's talking about. If we calculate Jesus lived 33 years, then 37 years in the future, this happened. So right in the middle of this verse, did you notice it? Did you catch it? Right in the middle of this verse, there's an event that occurs that refers to the crucifixion of Christ. And also in the same verse, there's a gap that is not referred to, not mentioned, but then we launch 37 years into the future where the temple is destroyed. But what I want you to notice also about that phrase in verse 26 is, it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come. Now some say that's Christ. But Christ already came in verse 26. He showed up and got cut off. And some say, well, he's coming again. Well, I agree with that. I mean, there's no doubt about that. He's coming again. But is he coming again to stop the sacrifices in 70 AD? Is that what he's talking about? Actually, I believe that this next phrase doesn't refer to Christ, but rather refers to the Antichrist. 
Look at verse 26, and it says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end shall be with a flood. Now, we know historically that Titus came in eventually and destroyed the temple. So we would most readily attribute this destruction to Rome. But there's actually more going on here than just that because it says the people of the prince who is to come. Some say, well, that means Rome. Well, actually, the majority of the soldiers that attacked Jerusalem that day, and listen to this, went against the orders of Titus, were not Romans. They were Arabic. They were Arabic. They had been adopted into, brought into, drafted, if you want to use that word, into the armies of Rome. Wherever they would go and wherever they would occupy places, they wouldn't bring all their soldiers there and dump them there. They would take a lot of the people who were indigenous to the area and bring them into their own realm and use them. One of the reasons why that Titus' command not to destroy the temple was disobeyed was not because the Roman soldiers who were true Romans disobeyed. If they did, they would have been slaughtered, and they, and they knew it. But the people who were Arabic, or let's put it in the term we know today, Islamic, okay, they were absolutely filled with hatred for the Jews, and they went against the order of Titus and burnt the temple down anyway. So the Bible's telling us that the people of the prince who is to come, I just throw this little nugget out to you that I believe the Antichrist is going to be Islamic. He's going to be Islamic. It makes a lot of sense in a lot of different ways, but that's way beyond my discussion today for sure. So going a little further now in verse 27, it says, Then he, and the he refers back to the prince who is to come, which would be the Antichrist, he shall confirm or make firm or reaffirm a covenant with many for one week or one seven and in the middle of the week he's going to break it he's going to make an agreement he's going to make a covenant he's going to make whatever it would be we don't know what that'll be but he's going to make something with the people of israel for one seven and then it says in the middle of that week exactly three and a half years into it he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and the offering and through the means of abominations that means setting up an idol in the temple he shall make it desolate. So I believe what this is referring to is exactly what Jesus was talking about, that you will see something set up in the holy place that Daniel talked about. Now, is that the only time we should, or only text we could consider? Well, no, actually not. One last one, and I'll close with this one today. If you're not convinced that the text in Daniel 9 would be a future event, Daniel 9, 27 specifically, Whenever you get to Daniel 12, there's literally no way around it. No way around it. It will be a future event, this abomination of desolation. Look at it with me. Daniel 12, Daniel 12, verse 1. It begins with these words, at that time. Well, what time is he talking about? Well, if you back up to chapter 11, verse 36... And this is not as far back as we could go, but just, just for the sake of time. In Daniel eleven thirty six, 36, it says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. <clears throat> this is the willful king, the arrogant king. This is a reference to Antichrist. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. 
and shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. Listen to this, verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above all of them. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you to what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? In fact, if you were to look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this last phrase here in verse 37 where it says, Nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all, is literally the same words that Paul uses. There's a very good likelihood that Paul's picking up on these terms. Remember, Paul was a Jew who was a scholar as far as the Old Testament is concerned. He would have known this very well. So this willful king is going to come up on the scene and he's not going to regard any God, the God of his fathers, or even the desire of women, which I believe is a reference to Messiah. Some say that means he's going to be a homosexual. It could be, but I think primarily the desire of women in those days was a Hebraism to refer to how women desired to give birth to the Messiah. So there's a good likelihood that what's in mind here is, is that this Antichrist will have no regard for his fathers and also the Messiah which wouldn't surprise us at all, nor regard any God or any other God and shall exalt himself above them all. Now verse 1 of chapter 12. Now you know that there are no chapter divisions in the Hebrew Bible. All right? So when we're reading, sometimes we have a tendency to isolate verses and isolate chapters, and we have a tendency to think, well, this chapter has nothing to do with the previous chapter, when in fact it's just the same vision. It's just continuing on with the same vision. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, at that time. What time? Whenever the king rises up. Whenever the willful king does according to his own will. He says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael who? Michael the archangel. That's who this is. One thing about the book of Daniel is you have these interactions between the angels. They, they come from heaven, come down here and talk to Daniel, and then fly back. And Michael gets involved in a fight with other demonic forces. It's amazing. It's fascinating. So at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So apparently Michael has a responsibility of stewardship over the people of Israel. And notice this. At that time, whenever he stands up, it says in chapter 12, verse 1, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Sounds just like the words of Jesus to me. And now you say, well, when is that? When will that happen? Is that historic? Was that 70 AD? Well, look at it. He says in verse 12, and at that time, what time? The time when Michael stands up? The time whenever there shall be a time of trouble, unlike any time since there was a nation. The time whenever the willful king does according to his own will and exalts himself above all that is called God. At that time, your people will be delivered. Rescued is the word. And listen to this. Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. That's the point. And verse 2 Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's resurrection. Some to everlasting life, 
some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the final judgment and the final resurrection. In other words, right in this text here, we have an event where this willful king stands up, exalts himself above all that is called God, doesn't regard any God, and then there's going to be a time of trouble unlike any time in the history of the world since that time. At that same time, the people of Israel will be delivered, and also at that time, those who are sleeping in the dust shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. This clearly throws us into the future. There's no way around it. You're in the future now. Well, let's go a little further. we only got a few verses left. Let's see what Daniel says. But you, Daniel, says this, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. That might explain why there's so many discussions on eschatology because we don't have all the facts, right? And we're still waiting on some of this to make sense. I don't know, maybe it's making sense. Maybe we're getting closer to the end. But he says in verse 4, Daniel, shut up the words and seal up the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge will increase. Just to add to that, that doesn't mean flying in planes all over the United States back and forth. Okay, that's talking about searching out knowledge. Okay, not talking about, well, we're in the time where we've got cars and we can drive everywhere. So this is the fulfilled prophecy. No, that's late great planet Earth eschatology. This is talking about people are going to be running to and fro doing what? Searching out what Daniel is saying verse 5 then i daniel looked and there stood two others one on this river bank and another on that river bank and one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be that's a good question how long does it take for these to be fulfilled what things the things you just talked about where antichrist rises up and there's going to be a time on the earth unlike any other time in the history of the world. And there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. How long? Well, the answer is given in verse 7 about middle ways. It says, there shall be a time and times, plural, and half a times. That refers to three and a half. Or three and a half years. And then, listen to what Daniel says. I like this in verse 8. Although I heard, I did not understand. That's what he says. Although I heard it, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? In other words, he's like a child. That didn't, give, that didn't help. I want some more information. Please answer my question. What will be the end of these things? Verse 9, and he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. What I believe that refers to is what, Dan, what Paul talks about, that you and I are not in darkness, that this, this day should overtake us as a thief. We're sons of the light, sons of the day. We understand what's coming because we can read our Bibles. And we know what it says. But now verse 11, he answers this question, even though he didn't earlier. Now he answers it. What will be the time of this? When will this happen, Daniel says. Look at verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifices are taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. He answers the question right here. He says, what's the catalyst? What will start it? Well, whenever the uh, daily sacrifices are removed, 
from the temple and the abomination is set up, there will be 1,290 days. All of that will take care of the things that we just read about where he says the willful king will rise on the scene. Michael will stand up. There will be a time of trouble unlike any time since there was a nation even to that time. And then those of Daniel's people will be delivered who were found written in the book. And those who sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting content. Daniel says, when will that happen? He's given the answer from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away. That's the answer. That's when it starts. And the abomination is set up. And there shall be 1,290 days to the end. Now, you know, whenever I say things like that, especially in the reform community, um, where I actually preach and live and exist, I get labeled a dispensationalist. But I'm, I'm not a premillennial dispensationalist. Like I told some people before, I'm a disco. I'm a covenant theologian and a dispensationalist. And frankly, to be honest with you, I've never read one book on dispensationalism. I just look at the text. What does the text say? I'm not trying to fit it into a scheme of anything. But it's interesting that whenever you think about these things, that you'll find out that I'm not the first one to come up with this. There are many others who have taught about this many years ago. This interpretation that I just shared with you is not something new. It's not something that started in the 19th century by Darby or Lewis Sperry Schaefer or Dallas Theological Seminary. In fact, it was held by many of the church fathers. They anticipated and looked for the rise of an antichrist. They equated the beast and the man of lawlessness and the antichrist as the one man that will be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Like, for instance, Justin Martyr who lived in 160 A.D., just literally decades after the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, mentioned that Jesus will return from heaven when this man of apostasy speaks words against the Most High and persecutes the saints. Irenaeus, who lived in 180 A.D., believed that the Antichrist is the lawless one, the son of perdition, who will seek to be worshipped as God. According to him, the wicked man will be endowed with all the power of the devil and will arise from a ten-nation confederacy to reign over the earth for three years and six months and will sit in the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, this is just a few decades after Jerusalem is destroyed. Another church father, Hippolytus, was in 200 AD, he said that he understood the beast as a future antichrist who will gather the Jews of the diaspora so that he may be worshipped by them as God. He also taught that the antichrist will set up the abomination of desolation and remove the sacrifice and oblation in the middle of the seventh week of Daniel. Hippolytus also believed that the antichrist will reign for time, times and half a times, which he says means three and a half years to rebuild Jerusalem and to restore the sanctuary while exalting himself above the kings, all kings, and above every god. Tertullian in 210 A.D. 
taught that the resurrection will occur immediately after the destruction of the Antichrist. Origen in 248 AD referenced Daniel 11:31 to teach that the Antichrist will establish the abomination of desolation on the temple so that he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Cyprian, Victorinus, Lactanitius, all of them also described a future Antichrist who will persecute the saints of God. Victorinus in 280 AD believed that the number 666 referred to the name of the Antichrist. Lactaninus in uh, 304 to 313 taught that Jesus will return to destroy the Antichrist who, have, who, will, who will have required worship of himself, called himself God, performed signs and wonders, and attempted to destroy the temple of God and to persecute the righteous people. During a 42-month distress and tribulation, such as has never been since the beginning of the world. And it goes on and on and on. So it's not new. You know why it's not new? Because it's in the text. That's why. The question is, you know, as you read texts like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can get into a whole lot of academic discussion and you can get into a whole lot of debates about eschatology, whether you're a preterist or a partial preterist or a consistent preterist or whether you're a futurist or a historicist or premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, any-trib, pan-out, pan-all, who knows. Before it's all over with, you've lost the point. You've lost the point. And one of the things that you'll notice in all the confessions, all the historic confessions of our faith, all of them land on this, that we all are looking forward to the visible, physical return of Jesus Christ, who will come back and judge the living and the dead. He will resurrect all those who have died, whether you are in Christ or out of Christ, and those who know Christ will enjoy the eternal bliss of heaven forever and ever with him. And those who do not will experience the eternal torments in hell forever and ever. That's settled. Settled. All the rest of it is important and enjoyable. And in fact, I think that it is important for us to know because Paul thought it was important to spend literally an entire chapter on it in 2 Thessalonians, which is only three chapters long. And whenever you got to 1 Thessalonians, he spent the end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 on it. So I think Paul thought it was important. And if he thought it was important, that means the Holy Spirit thought it was important because he wrote it. And that means all of us should think it's important and study it and spend time in it, learn it. And listen to this. Be ready. Be ready for the return of our Lord. Let's close in prayer. Okay? Father, we thank you for our time together today. A privilege, Lord, just to gather here and to look at these very complex, detailed prophecies in your servant Daniel. Lord, we thank you for what you've given to us. We thank you for the light you have provided. We know, Father, that there's still mystery. But, Lord, we also know that you very clearly taught us that there is coming a man of lawlessness, a man, a son of destruction. Lord God, I pray that all of us would be prepared to meet the difficulties of the days ahead. That we would be ready to suffer persecution, to fellowship in your sufferings, 
and to honor you through all that we do, with the words we say, with the actions we have, and that, Lord, anyone here today who's never trusted Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you would open their heart to the truth. We would not want to face that day, the day of the Lord, without Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that you would open their heart to the truth. Grant them saving faith. Please, Lord God, give them genuine repentance to turn from their sin to follow you. Enable them by the power of your spirit to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And Lord, I pray for the believer here today who may be struggling. It's been a hard week. It's been a hard few months. It's been a hard few years. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with the future blessed hope and that we look forward to Jesus Christ coming back rescuing his people, taking us home to be with you. You tell us in your word in John 14 that you have gone away to prepare a place for us and that where you are, you will come and receive us to be with you. We look forward to that day, Lord God. And thank you for our time. In Jesus' name.